This is an ABC podcast. I was about 20 and I was studying in the university in Beijing and uh, someone uh, shared it with me. Can you tell me who that was? Uh, no, I can't. What was it that you saw? It was a documentary. It was a Western one. And it was in English? It was. This is Iris Zhao. She's our producer. And what we're talking about is the first time she saw the Tank Man of Tiananmen Square. It was a, was a video, but they, they just um, had this picture of Tank Man. Um, there, it was just a male standing in front of a tank. And what got me was he was holding two plastic bags, which looked like groceries. And I was kind of wondered why someone carrying grocery would be just standing in front of the tank, which is pretty strange to me. Only one brave protester dared resist the tanks. It's one of the most famous images of all time. Eventually, the luckiest man in China was dragged away by friends. Iris and I were born nine days apart. Both of us, while protesters, were in Tiananmen Square in 1989. Except she was born in a hospital two kilometres away from the square itself. We were both a month old when the army massacred the students there and tank men took his stand. And even though I lived in a completely different country, I heard about tank man several years before she did. What was your reaction when you first saw that? I was sceptical. I didn't thought that's that's what actually happened. Yeah, because in, in the uni, I studied journalism and all the teachers were talking about is how easy news could be manipulated. And I was thinking probably the documentary were made up in that way just to show China in a bad light. Did you go home and talk about it with your parents after you saw the documentary? I did ask them about this, but they didn't want to talk about it. I think there's something they're afraid of, uh, because this is something that's not supposed to be uh, discussed in public. So even at home, I think they were trying to avoid this conversation to protect me. Not knowing this stuff is safer. So, uh, how is the memory of what happened at Tiananmen Square preserved by the people who were there or who remember it? What happened there was only passed on through memories of people who were present. Public discussions have been banned in China. People seldom like to bring it up in public, as it might put others involved in danger. When people did talk about it, they then treat it like it's a secret. The Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989 was one of the most significant events of the 20th century. It showed that while other communist regimes were collapsing, the Chinese Communist Party was willing to deploy its army against its own people to maintain power. Hundreds, maybe thousands, died. But the party convinced hundreds of millions of people that it's all just a beat-up concocted by the West. It was one of the most successful cover-ups in history. I'm Matt Bevan, 
and this is China If You're Listening, a podcast about the breakdown of the relationship between China and Australia. Today, Australia is wrestling with how to handle reports of a massive human rights violation against the Uyghur people in China's far west. This is forced labour, this is forced sterilizations, forced abortions, the kind of things that we haven't seen in an awfully long time in this world. Are the pieces of information leaked out of the Xinjiang region enough to warrant punishing China with sanctions? Or is the Communist Party right in saying we should just mind our own business? China does not interfere in Australia's internal affairs. Naturally, China expects reciprocity in terms of respect. This is the story of how China covered up an attack on its own people at Tiananmen Square and how today in Xinjiang, it's doing it all over again. In the centre of Beijing is the Forbidden City, the palace where the emperors lived. At the southern end of the palace is the Tiananmen, meaning the Gate of Heavenly Peace. It's big and red and has a giant picture of Chairman Mao on it. In front of the gate is Tiananmen Square, an open space the size of a racecourse, with an obelisk, the monument to the heroes of the people, and a big mausoleum for Mao built in the middle. On one side of the square is the Great Hall of the People, and in 1989, this is where the funeral of Hu Yaobang was taking place. Hu Yaobang was admired by many Chinese, uh, young or old, uh, especially back in the uh, late 70s or the 80s. This is Rose Tang. She was a teenager in the 80s and part of the first generation of Chinese kids since the Communist Revolution to be exposed to Western books and music. The Chinese Communist Party started to open China up called the Open Policy, they call it Open Door Policy. We're talking about the foreign books, the books about politics, about, you know, and the literature, the Western music, like John Denver, Karen Carpenter. Those music was publicly promoted on national TV. China was changing, and the flamboyant senior official Hu Yaobang was the face of political reform. When he suddenly died of a heart attack, it was a shock to many. Two years before his death, he had been sidelined by the Communist Party. Students were angry that his vision of a more open China had been rejected by the party, and his death meant it had even less chance of coming true. Tiananmen Square filled with angry students who came in huge numbers to attend his funeral at the Great Hall of the People. By the early hours, at least 100,000 people had swarmed into the vast Tiananmen Square. Beneath the full moon, the students gathered round the monument to the heroes of the people, paying their respects to Mr. Hu. It was now clear they planned to stage a vigil in defiance of the government. When the protests began in April, Rose Tang wasn't political. She was just a 20-year-old art student living on campus. I was out shopping. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was shopping with roommates. When I was in Tiananmen, I saw these huge crowds of students and uh, police. Completely coincidentally, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was there too. As we emerged, I remember looking out over the square, and this was a day of huge protest, a million in the square. And I had never seen anything like this in my life. 
This was in May 1989. He was a political staffer at the time on a trip with his boss, Queensland Labor leader Wayne Goss. As we walked out onto the square, Wayne, the laconic Queenslander, turned to me and said, well, Kevin, I knew you'd make me feel welcome in China, but this is ridiculous. There were a million people in the square. And then talking to the students themselves, I mean, you having begun a conversation with a dozen, suddenly there are a hundred. And then you found yourself addressing a rally, a mini rally within a rally. And uh, it was a surreal experience. But Kevin Rudd says he saw the danger. And I said this to my Australian colleagues at the time, this is going to end in tears. Everything I knew about the Chinese Communist Party, I knew at the end of the day they would not tolerate this. Martial law was declared. The top Communist Party leadership team began the process of calling in the People's Liberation Army. As we travelled north out of Beijing, these troops, trains, were coming south into Beijing from Shenyang. As the Central Military Commission shipped in young, raw recruits from the countryside into the city so that when they opened fire, of course, they would not recognise any of the people they were opening fire on. Rose Tang closely followed the protests. At first, she was cynical, but then thousands of people began a hunger strike. There was no word, no reaction from the government. That was when I started to join the marches. It was the 3rd of June, 1989. I was playing tennis. It was a balmy afternoon, Saturday afternoon. There were students running across the sports ground, uh, yelling, they're stopping the military trucks. With tennis racket in my hand, I raced to the uh, front gate of the uh, university. She saw soldiers in a truck making their way into the city. And I realized the soldiers were younger than us. They're all sweating and shivering and they were scared of us. And I talked to them and told them what was happening in Beijing. We're not counter-revolutionary rioters. We were protesting for everybody, including themselves. Her university was 25 kilometres from Tiananmen Square. She decided to get in there and defend the protesters. So I quickly rushed back to my dormitory, put on black T-shirt, and I took a black jacket and I changed into black jeans. And I took a dagger. She got on her bike and rode as fast as she could. There were burnt buses and military trucks lying around. It was like in a war movie. When she arrived, there was very little sign of what was coming. There were grandparents with grandchildren, families and little kids strolling around with their palm leaf fans, paper fans, just like another summer evening in Beijing. I was telling them, why are you here? Guys, please, the war is coming. It was two months into the protest and the square was a mess. A million people had been camping there. Tents were all over the place, mess and rubbish as well. The first thing we did was really gathering weapons. We dismantled some tents and we got bamboo sticks, wooden sticks. Late in the night, the army was nearing the square. Towards the later part of the night, the bullets started to fly all over the place. We did not know the bullets were real until wounded students were carried into the square. And we saw the sparks on the monument to people's heroes. The troops arrived first. 
Then the tanks. I heard the loudest noise I've heard in my life. There were hundreds of tanks coming at us from all directions. We thought they were going to crush us because we saw them smashing, flattening lots of tents. I suspected some of the students were crushed by the tanks. The tanks completely surrounded the square, boxing in the protesters. Student leaders negotiated with the army and were told they would be able to leave without being harmed. So the students reluctantly got up and uh, we were singing internationally. And slowly exiting. They allowed a very narrow exit between two tanks. But the exit became an ambush. The foot soldiers appeared from behind the tanks and surrounded all of our students and started bludgeoning us, hitting us with their sticks and iron bars. So the, there was a stampede. The crowd just went really crazy and people were howling and crying all around me. It was so crowded, my glasses were smashed on my face. I stumbled on several bodies. I'm sure they are not alive. If they are alive, they would have moved when I stepped on them. She was crushed up against the side of a tank. I was crying for mom, even though I had a strained relationship with my mother. She climbed up onto the tank and found herself crawling under the barrel of a machine gun. The soldier holding it hadn't seen her. And I could see a soldier wearing a helmet. The lid was open. He was holding a machine gun, aiming at the crowds. He was not looking at me. I thought I could pull out my dagger and do something about it. In less than two months, Rose Tang had gone from a university student out shopping to a revolutionary willing to stab a machine gunner to death. She decided against it. He had his machine gun aiming at other people. I may be killed, but he would have killed so many others. Rose escaped the crush, left the square, and found herself in front of a television camera. Do you think anybody got killed? Of course, I'm sure, very sure. Many students were killed. Rose Tang, without glasses on, told CNN and the world how she was feeling. I'm very angry. Five days after what became known around the world as the Tiananmen Square Massacre, Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke organised a memorial service at Parliament House in Canberra. Unarmed young men and women were sprayed with bullets and they were crushed by tanks. Innocent people were shot and beaten in the streets and in their homes. The West had struggled to piece together exactly what had happened at Tiananmen Square that night. No reporters were in the square. They were all confined to the Beijing Hotel, about a kilometre up the road, trying to watch what was happening through long zoom lenses. Bob Hawke received a diplomatic cable, describing in gruesome detail what the Chinese army had done with the bodies in Tiananmen Square. He decided he would read it out during the memorial. They had orders 
that nobody in the square be spared. This speech was a big deal. People who saw it remember this description to this day. Anti-personnel carriers and tanks then ran backwards and forwards over the bodies of the slain until they were reduced to pulp, after which bulldozers moved in to push the remains into piles which were then incinerated by troops with flamethrowers. Bob Hawke would later tell his wife and biographer Blanche Dalpaget that the information in the diplomatic cable turned out to be false. But there was little else to go on. Information was scarce. One of the few things everyone could agree on was that a man had resisted the People's Liberation Army by standing in front of a tank while holding his shopping bags. The tank man. A lone man standing in front of a row of tanks. The strength of his will, stalling the might of armour as it rolled down a Beijing street. Many people stood in front of tanks that week, but he became famous because he was the only one to do it in front of the Beijing Hotel. Nobody knows what happened to him, or what his name is. In Australia, Bob Hawke was furious at the Chinese leadership. To crush the spirit and the body of youth is to crush the very future of China itself. Fearful of what would happen to some Chinese students in Australia if they returned home, Hawke, without first consulting with his cabinet, offered them the option of staying for at least four years. Australia was left with a quandary, though, which we have been wrestling with ever since. Can you continue to trade with a country freely while criticising their human rights record? Pretty soon after Tiananmen, we decided that yes, we can. But Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans says trade and human rights should be kept separate. The theory everyone was working with was that eventually the Communist Party regime would give way to democracy, that the students would eventually get their way. Bob Hawke believed that leaders Deng Xiaoping and Li Peng had gravely underestimated the will of the Chinese people to bring about democracy. Uh, Deng and Li Peng may believe that what they've done has brought this issue to an end. It hasn't, and it can't, and it won't. But it did. Already, the cover-up was underway. China firstly told the rest of the world to back off. The actions taken by some students are entirely internal affairs of China. Then they started the process of crushing the protest movement for good. Beijing police started rounding up and arresting students who had escaped the square. Rose Tang managed to avoid arrest by being asleep. I did not know they were banging on the door of the dormitory. I was so deep asleep, I did not wake up to answer the door. <laughs> <laughs> so you slept through your own, your own potential arrest. That's extraordinary. Exactly. Many weren't so lucky. A wanted list of student leaders was published and state TV news broadcast excited reports whenever one of the names on the list was captured by police. The arrests are being televised. Hard-faced soldiers with automatic weapons push student activists into souls. Then one day those reports suddenly ended. The protests at Tiananmen Square were never mentioned again in Chinese media. The massacre, famous around the world, was barely discussed. When it was, it was only referred to as the June 4th incident. 
Iris Zhao, our producer, and kids her age were never told what had really happened. It was erased from history. The cover-up was so successful, it emboldened the Chinese leadership to try it again, when another problem arose exactly 20 years later, a long way away from Tiananmen Square. Instead of a brief clash with a few thousand students, the Chinese government is now engaging in a years-long campaign against millions of people. It's being called a crime against humanity. Beijing, where the Tiananmen Square protests happened, is in the far north of China. It's the Chinese capital, a major bustling city. But if you get on one of China's new high-speed trains for about 37 hours, you arrive in a very different part of the country, Xinjiang. Most of the people um, basically um, rural farmers. Alim Osman grew up in Xinjiang. He's a Uyghur an ethnic minority native to the region. The south is um, very dry. That's why it's famous for its fruits, uh, like uh, grapes, like uh, melons, all that stuff. So the north is a bit wet. So it's um, famous for um, the animal farming. Xinjiang is slightly larger than Queensland, but it has five times as many people living in it. It's around... 25 million people. About the same population as Australia. Exactly, yeah, yeah. (laughs) For the last 70 years, Xinjiang has undergone massive change, and that eventually led to another enormous clash between the Chinese government and its people. So to understand why, there's a few things you need to know. First, most Chinese people are not Uyghurs, they are ethnic Hans. Uyghurs and Hans are very different. Uyghurs speak their own language, similar to Turkish. They see themselves as culturally and ethnically similar to Central Asian nations rather than China. They're also mostly Muslims. And many don't call it Xinjiang. They call it East Turkestan or simply the Uyghur homeland. The Uyghurs spent the first half of the 20th century trying to gain independence. But as soon as the Communist Party took over in 1949, the region started to change. The Han were coming in big numbers. So when the Han Chinese people are coming into the region, the government give um, incentives, like tax-free. And um, even they um, give government grants as well. So encouraging Han Chinese people to come to our homeland. So basically the local indigenous people marginalised more and more. So always the Han Chinese people, the um, first uh, preference to, uh, to apply for the job and they will get the job. By 2009, the Uyghurs were almost outnumbered by Hans in their own homeland. A lack of work for Uyghurs led them to migrate to other Chinese cities cities dominated by Hans. I grew up in an environment there were very few minorities. This is Yaichu Wong. She's Han and grew up in one of China's coastal provinces, which is 99% Han and a long, long way from Xinjiang. All I knew about the minorities was that they were not as hardworking as we are, not as business savvy as we are. Uh, you know, they sometimes steal things from us. So, Racism, essentially. So those are all the prejudices and biases I was taught and I was told by people around me. But in reality, I don't think I've met many minorities growing up in China at all. But this is where the trouble started. 
almost exactly 20 years after Tiananmen Square. There is a fight broke out between uh, Uyghur factory workers and the local people in Guangdong province in mainland China. So as a result of that fight, a few Uyghur people died. News spread back to the Xinjiang capital city of Urumqi and a protest began. On the 5th of July, 9, uh, 2009, the protest uh, held uh, on the streets of Urumqi. So the people went to the um, uh, government building asking for explanation what happened. So after a um, few hours, no one came out to say anything. So this uh, protest became violent. The protest turned into a riot. The Chinese government said nearly 200 people, mostly Hans, were killed in the resulting violence. This was the largest in a long line of issues in Xinjiang. The previous 20 years had been dotted with terrorist attacks and police actions. The Communist Party government had been making wild claims without offering evidence that these were caused by outside terrorist influence. The Taliban and bin Laden's training camps have trained more than a thousand terrorists for Xinjiang. But this deadly rioting in Urumqi was the biggest incident yet. The entire world was watching to see how China would react. After the initial violence died down, they began working through the Tiananmen playbook, starting with the army. The military is now firmly in control of the streets here and determined to keep it that way. Every afternoon shift change, hundreds of soldiers are trucked into the city's main square, then marched through the streets back to their barracks. So, step one, big military and police presence. Control the streets, make arrests. So at that time, about 5,000 people arrested. So some of them um, sentenced to prison for life. Some of them uh, sentenced to death. So they, they, all these people are Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities. Step two, propaganda. The party used their media network to tell the country and the world that everything was under control in Xinjiang. State TV broadcasts pictures nationwide of prosperous Uyghur and Han Chinese working side by side in harmony. Xinjiang calmed back down. Things returned essentially to normal. Until... Xi Jinping became the president of China in 2013 and something mysterious started happening. People began disappearing off the streets. Especially people with a strong Uyghur identities, uh, people who travelled overseas, people um, had uh, passports, uh, people had um, uh, religious names people with um, a long beard, so all rounded up. So people who did any of those things were finding themselves arrested. It was unclear to a limb what was happening to them. As the president of the Uyghur Association of Victoria, he tried to keep up to date on what was happening via the Chinese social media platform WeChat. WeChat is basically censored by Chinese communist uh, regime. He kept in touch with family and friends through group chats, exchanging stories of their day-to-day lives, but soon that began to change. Even um, my um, family members back home, they sort of um, uh, deleted me from um, WeChat accounts. 
So even um, uh, my schoolmates back then, uh, they sort of uh, uh, not talking to me directly. One by one, his friends and family simply vanished or went silent. I have two brothers and one sister. So basically, um, I only have contact with my oldest brother. He's around 70 years old and he's just a um, farmer. So rest of my um, relatives, they sort of, uh, they don't talk to me. So when I talk to him, uh, he always um, saying that everything's very good here and um, all our uh, relatives all good. And then um, before I start any question, he uh, started to uh, praise the Chinese Communist Party. In late 2017, thanks to Western reporting, information began to come to light. And a limb and the world finally found out what was happening. People were being sent to massive internment camps. There were fences around the building, about two metre high barbed wire fences. They had been set up across the region to re-educate people the government thought were suspicious. This former detainee explained what it was like in the camps. They were cutting detainees' hair. One person tried to run away and he was sentenced to five years in jail. There's a special punishment room. Sometimes they forced us on our knees and made us put our hands behind our head and hit us severely. The Associated Press reported declining birth rates, forced abortions, forced sterilisations. People started to call what was happening a genocide. It's hard to get a handle on how many people have been sent to the camps, but most estimates put it between one and three million. You know, they have to receive a daily indoctrination. There are lots of reports of being forced to uh, 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 torture, and there are incidences of, of you know, uh, rape um, allegations. Yachu Wong from Human Rights Watch says the crackdown on Uyghurs isn't confined to the camps. And there are the people who are outside of the camps or the, uh, prisons, and they are living under ter- uh, extensive surveillance. Tens of thousands of facial recognition cameras are posted on the streets. Guards check ID cards constantly, and it's not limited to public places. There are also Chinese officials literally living in their houses to monitor their activity and report their activities. Officials just rock up at your house and come in, have dinner, maybe stay over, just to keep an eye on you. And more stories continue to emerge. There are the people who are out of the camps, but they have been transported to factories to uh, make goods. Last year, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, a partially government-funded think tank known for its criticism of China, published a study alleging Uyghurs were being forced to work in factories across China for no pay. Workers were shackled and handcuffed and punished if they complained. Documents show how detainee labour is being used to attract companies to set up shop in Xinjiang. What's happening in Xinjiang is starting to look far worse than anything that happened in Tiananmen Square. It appears to be the largest mass incarceration of a racial or religious group since the Nazi Holocaust. When Tiananmen Square happened in 1989, the Western world knew very little about it. It's been similarly difficult with Xinjiang. China has tightly controlled information through a number of methods and denies anything that doesn't align with their narrative about what's happening. 
In April, they put out slick propaganda videos justifying their actions in Xinjiang. Xinjiang has been transformed into a land of life, a land of thriving vitality. This one is called Xinjiang is a Wonderful Land. In it, people dance and release white doves into the air. The Chinese government has placed high on its agenda the inheritance, protection and development of the excellent traditional ethnic cultures in Xinjiang. In another video, a woman said that she has put in an IUD, a contraceptive device, but that she did it voluntarily. Another woman said that she has been more satisfied with her life after training from one of the re-education camps helped her banish all of her extremist thoughts. The Chinese government has flooded Western social media networks with their narrative about what's happening. Any criticism from journos is attacked relentlessly. 26-year-old journalist and researcher Vicky Shu was the lead writer on that Australian Strategic Policy Institute article about Uyghurs being forced into labour. I have been enduring uh, the smear campaign for a month. The Chinese state has called me a female demon um, for writing about forced labour in Xinjiang and generally in China. The attacks have made Vicky concerned for the safety of her friends and family back home. In the past um, eight months, um, people close to me who still live in China um, have been targeted by Chinese intelligence um, operatives. Um, People close to me have been interrogated, repeatedly detained. They're paying a price for me to tell the truth. China is attempting a Tiananmen-style cover-up, but it's not 1989 anymore. We've got enough information to know what's happening. Thousands of Uyghurs have told their stories. Satellite photos have shown the construction of camps beginning in 2017 and growing to enormous size. Internal Chinese Communist Party documents have been leaked, confirming much of what's been reported and proving that the orders came directly from President Xi Jinping. The US has responded harshly. Vicky Xu's report on forced labour has led to the strongest sanctions response against China in decades. The US government announced that they would block trade with any company suspected of using forced Uyghur labour. Pressure is on Australia to do the same. The US, UK, Canada and the Netherlands have called China's treatment of Uyghurs a genocide. But Australia's Foreign Minister Maurice Payne has stopped short. We have a slightly different uh, approach to, uh, to that um, turn of phrase. Ever since Tiananmen Square, Australia has taken the attitude that human rights and trade are separate. We can criticise one without affecting the other. China has made it clear that is no longer the case, so a choice needs to be made. Australia's 30 or so years of criticism seems to have made little difference. Even criticism from the US doesn't seem to matter all that much. But if we speak up, China will almost certainly clamp down even harder on trade. So the question is, can we live without China's money? Or can we live with ourselves if we stay silent? China, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevel. It's produced by Iris Zhao, Will Ockenden and Amelia Tan. Our series producer is Yasmin Parry. 
If you want more analysis of the latest China news, check out the ABC's new weekly TV program, China Tonight, with Stan Grant. It's available on iView. Next. We flew down south and we got caught in uh, thunderstorm conditions with low cloud. When you're in a small plane, rainstorms are generally considered bad things, but not for Lang Hancock on his flight in 1952. A low cloud then forced us down under them and to escape from that situation, we went down the gorge. He flew so low to escape a thunderstorm, he was inside a gorge, flying just above the river below. He looked out the side window. And the walls of the gorge I saw were iron. Lang Hancock had discovered the world's largest deposit of iron ore. It would make him very wealthy. But just after he died, his descendants would become mind-bogglingly rich. See, China became dependent on Australia's iron ore. China needs the ore. It's, a, it's part of the national security to have that supply. Ever since, China has bought mammoth amounts of it to build roads, highways, cities, to fuel an enormous construction boom. But what happens if China loses the desire to build? That's next on China If You're Listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.